This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. Welcome. And with me, as always, I have Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How are you doing? I'm well, well. Uh, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Who do we have on the 3D Pod today? Well, today we've got Maxim, uh, or Max uh, Lebowski, and Max is uh, the founder of Forum Labs, who uh, was busy trying to conquer the world with his uh, DLP, uh, or his SLA 3D printers, his desktop 3D printers, his software, and now also they're doing powder bed fusion. So it's a very exciting time, I think, for Forum Labs, and we're very excited to have Max on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, how are you doing, Max? Is everything good? Everything is great. Summer's here. COVID's mostly over. Business is good. Okay. And uh, I remember, like, I worked for Farm Labs for a while, and 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 I, I played ultimate frisbee with you guys. Is that still a cultural touchstone for Farm Labs? It's uh, it was maybe missing this summer, but uh, we, we have our annual summer camp uh, coming up uh, in in a week or so. So hopefully, we will get some ultimate uh, frisbee in there. Okay, okay, that's good. I, I would love that to stay a tradition because that was a, quite a while ago, actually. That was like uh, years ago. So, first off, I think I think we, we should talk about like you know how you started Forum Labs because at one point you well you first got into three D printing at, at Hod Lipsum's lab at Cornell, right? That's right. And and you worked on the 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 Fab at Home printer a little bit. You did some stuff. What, what did you do there? Yeah, so I guess I kind of known about 3D printing for a while and got to use a printer here or there, but where I really got uh, got uh, pulled in fully was uh, at Cornell University with Professor Hod Lipson uh, and this Fab at Home project. And Fab at Home was one of the early open source 3D printer projects that, that got kind of kickstarted this wave of accessible desktop 3D printers. There was that and uh, RepRap was the sort of better known um, contemporary project from the UK. Uh, but Fab at Home was trying to do more of like a flexible multi-material thing. Um, and I, I worked actually on a metal printing process, printing metal slurries and centering them and worked on a new version of that machine. And uh, But that's where I really just got hooked to this idea that 3D printers are really powerful, but they're expensive and difficult to use. What if there were 3D printers everywhere and they're cheaper and I didn't know exactly what people would do with them, but it just, it seemed like that would be a powerful thing if more people had them. Yeah. It's interesting about Fab at Home, by the way. I think I think they don't get the credit they deserve because the people that worked on that, because I thought it was amazing because it was like, you could do syringe extrusion, you could do batteries, you could do all sorts of very advanced things, but the things cost like, was it three grand or something, which is a little bit too expensive at the time, right? Yeah, well, actually, I, I think that the big lesson I took away from that, I, I agree that it, it, um, it's got a lot, lot less attention and less credit for sort of it, um, the impact it had starting the desktop 3D printing wave. But the, the, the lesson there is the reason RepRap was more successful largely is it focused on kind of known proven FDM technology. Meanwhile, with Fab at Home, they were trying to extrude different materials, multi-materials, metals, all sorts of different things, bio-applications, and... Um, uh, and that's definitely a lesson we've applied at, at Form Labs, where uh, you know making something that works today that people can use today can be just so much more impactful than something that people can experiment and, and tinker with. 
I think in the interim, you actually looked at doing like a C, a desktop C and C or something at one point, didn't you? Yeah, I'm kind of you know, broadly interested in uh, the field I'd call digital fabrication, which includes any kind of computer controlled tools for making things. And I've sort of built some machines on the side. And, and even when I was thinking about starting form labs um, later at MIT, I, I looked at different types of products and even software products and things like that, that we could build. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of other opportunity, um, but, but came back to desktop 3d printers as uh, the thing that was ripe for innovation and new products at the time. And why did you pick SLA then as a technology to work with? There was a couple, a couple of reasons. One is uh, I thought incorrectly at the time that, that FDM <laughs> was sort of saturated and that there were so many players already starting to do FDM machines and MakerBot had some early success. So I thought I needed to do something different, uh, just to do something different. Um, and, uh, and then SLA also appealed to me as being actually the simplest possible process, like the least number of moving parts. And, uh, and right. it seemed like it might even be, make it a, a cheaper, simpler machine. Um, and then just, there's also this thought that there's six or seven 3D printing, main 3D printing processes, but only one was on the desktop. Why, why was that the case? Why not another one? And so I actually looked at all of the other ones and concluded that SLA also made sense. Yeah. You, you didn't want to go for LOM or binder jet or, <laughs> or powder bed. Yeah. yeah no, I, I, <laughs> I, th- I thought about them. I played with inkjets. I, I jetted some materials out of like desktop 2D uh, yeah. printers. Uh, but uh, yeah, but SLA just really made sense. People really don't understand the genius of the, the Formlabs design. I mean, I think, I think you managed to make the process cheaper by engineering it well. And by making it on the one hand real reliable, I think because of this, you know, I think you saw in the beginning, there was few parts. And if you made those parts good and work well, you had a really good system. I think that, that that's kind of, to me, is the, the genius of the Formlabs uh, system. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, I mean, what's inside a Form 1 is, is, is actually pretty pretty bare bones, uh, pretty small number of parts. Although, to be fair, a Form 1 was not yet a kind of delivering on the dream that we wanted. And we did have to get to a somewhat more complex Form 2 to, to really get there. What did you feel was the the issue with the form one that you solved in the form two? Uh, it's, it's a lot of things. Um, I mean, the number one, just improving on print performance, improving on accuracy and surface finish and detail, mm. uh, most especially print, improving on print success. Uh, we, we changed the, the print engine. Um, we, we changed everything. There, actually, there's only two parts in common between the form one and form two, the button on the front of the machine and the rubber stoppers that hold the, the cover open. <laughs> very, very important components, clearly. <laughs> uh, and, and then also sort of these like user interface things like a cartridge system. So there's less handling resin and, and Wi-Fi mm. connection and uh, stuff like that. But we, we had kind of in our original plans for form one, and then we had to quickly kind of scale back to here's the thing we can actually build and get done on, on the timeline and budget that we have. Because where, where did you get, because you were tinkering in your dorm room or well, actually your apartment, right? And then and then what, what happened like to, to the part of that and having like a team and stuff, what happened in between there? When, when did you really gather people? I was at MIT doing a master's at the Media Lab, kind of staying involved in this field, but not really working on 3D printers as my research. Um, then started thinking about starting a company and I kind of on paper looked at different printing processes and decided to build a stereolithography machine. 
Um, and uh, then I um, called up my friend, David Craner. Well, actually, he was my roommate at the time, so I just walked upstairs to his room and, uh, <laughs> and said, hey, do you want to do this with me? And he th- thought about it for a day or two and said, sure, even though I hadn't really told him what we would be doing. But... <laughs> Um, and, uh, then we borrowed some money from my cousin to build a prototype because we really didn't have anything. Um, and, uh, uh, and that was all easy up until then. Then the, the long, hard part came of, we knew we needed to raise like hundreds of thousands, maybe a million dollars to, to actually get started. And so then we, we set about with our prototype in the basement and, um, started putting together pitch decks and all that. And there was sort of a long long six month period of dozens and dozens of pitches and everyone telling us no, um, until we found some, some people crazy enough to, to believe in us. What I'm curious, what did you think was the, the main reason that you, you were getting no's one after another? Um, I think that, uh, you know, especially at that time, that was 2011, there was very few, uh, venture, uh, capital type investments going into this sort of hardware product. Uh, so that, that was one thing. Um, we were quite young and experienced, you know, I had zero, we both had basically zero work experience fresh out of school. Um, right. Taking on something that's, it's pretty challenging. Um, and, uh, and 3d printing was really pretty unknown to, to people. Uh, you know, it's enjoyed a lot more, um, public awareness since then so a lot of a lot of things conspiring uh, to, to make us an unlikely uh, investment i think it's interesting that the 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 people who did say yes <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, it's interesting they must be kind of very feel very validated at the moment <laughs> yeah i think we've, we've done well for, for all of our investors and certainly the early stage investors yeah no there's a, a one really great story is how we actually met the, the very first lead investor um it was uh we were really like months into this pitching process and we were kind of we kept getting we were good enough that people would introduce us to another person who then would not right. invest and introduce us to another person <laughs> and, right uh, so we were, we're down that line we we're actually pitching a vc from best buy the electronic store it, it was over um dinner at legal seafoods in in cambridge and harvard square uh, sort of commonplace for a meeting like that. And um, we knew it wasn't going to work out. We had enough experience with these that like you, you can often tell in like 15, 20 minutes that it's whether it's a fit or not. And then uh, Dave and I got back home to our apartment uh, and David uh, got an email from a friend of ours from MIT with a copy of a retweet of an original tweet uh, from at M Caper saying on the patio at Legal Seafoods, overhearing two entrepreneurs pitching uh, 3D printing. Anyone interested? <laughs> and uh, this happened seriously. This, I didn't know this. This happened yeah. seriously. And I, <laughs> you can you can look up the the, the the tweet is still up. You can find it. I, okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we saw that. We also laughed. And um, if it was just me. Uh, I would have just laughed and gone to bed um, uh. being like, okay, yeah, funny. I don't know what to, what to do with this. But luckily David was a bit more of a kind of an outgoing enterprising person. So he's like, Oh, M caper. Uh, who's that? Oh, that's Mitch caper. This, this uh, entrepreneur guy from the PC revolution. Why don't we 
send him an email. And, yeah, right. <laughs> and David sent him a one line email that was, uh, that was us. Did you hear anything you like? And, uh, Mitch wrote back, uh, later that night. Cause I guess he was in California time or something. And, um, said, I don't know anything about it, so I, I probably wouldn't invest, but I'm happy to meet with you at uh, some point in the future. And um, set up that meeting, and he came by. And uh, by the end of the meeting, to paraphrase, um, this is just like it was when we were inventing the PC. I uh, would love to invest. And uh, yeah, and he ended up leading uh, around investment. And then once you get a guy like that involved, it's it's very easy. To uh, get a lot more people. Yeah, involved. then it comes a lot easier. Because he's like he's like a legend. He's a proper legend for people who are not uh, into that. He's like you know he's like, if you're making a list, you'd probably start with that guy. Like, he's, yeah, yeah, and he has tons. <laughs> and he was successful as an entrepreneur himself, and then has tons of amazing investments himself, like early stage investments in Uber and other uh, companies. And yeah. And 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 do you have like? In that whole, well, what, so he found it very much like the PC age. Was that his main driver for investing, or uh, I would say so. I mean, I think he liked us, and um, uh, yeah, and and believed in believed in us specifically too. Um, I think part of it was um, we uh, uh, we were not having so much success with the Boston sort of based investors who are a little bit more interested and more proven. Um, entrepreneurs, whereas uh, people in the Bay Area, and especially people who have been through some cycles of that, they've seen people fresh out of school build some amazing businesses. So there's sort of more appetite for for that around there. I think it's interesting that then you decided to do a Kickstarter. Like that was also very new at the time. And that was also kind of you mix this VC model with the, the Kickstarter. Why, why, why did you do that? Taking pre-orders uh, to kind of keep help finance the company was was part of the plan from, you know, from the early days. Uh, we we knew that um, there's a lot more investment needed for sort of hardware product like this, and uh, and that one way to you know get some of that money is from customers. Kickstarter was not necessarily like definitely part of the plan, but as we got closer to the point where we thought we were ready to take pre-orders for Form One. Um, Kickstarter was just starting to get some success then. And it was that summer in 2012 when they had a, a couple of other hardware products um, reach some success there. There was Pebble, this watch, and Booyah, a game console, and a few other things. So there was some kind of validation that it might be possible to use to put our product on there. But it was honestly a big question because there was no B2B products. There was nothing in the thousands of dollars range. And we were already focused right. completely on professional users. So it was not a like a slam dunk fit at all, um, and we were we were really worried that it's like bad for our brand or something like that. Um, but uh, actually, Mitch, I, I remember the conversation with him where we sort of presented the pros and cons, and he said, "Why are you deliberating about this? Like, you Kickstarter is going to give you this sort of free PR and credibility when you have none, and it's going to help you go from zero to something." Like there's no question. Don't worry about the small downsides when, like, right now you have nothing, so you have nothing to lose. Uh, <laughs> so, That's nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, well it, you uh, had investment at that time, right? So, well, like, yeah, but, I, I get the I get the concern of of not wanting to devalue yourself as a result. But of but we bank. had no value. The, yes, we had cash right, in the bank, right. but they weren't going to take our cash <laughs> in the bank. Uh, so no, that, that was actually a really good lesson for me of like, what does good advice and good decision making look like it's it's often about not just like what's the right answer but 
clarifying it's used to get mixed up with like six pros and seven cons and you know it's kind of complicating things but usually there's only one or two things that really matter and figuring out what those are and making a decision around them that's that's key to good decision making yeah it's difficult to make like an ordinal list and actually have like 10 things in both column and then actually not see the important things yeah so how many form labs have been built at this at this point i think more than eighty thousand at this point wow oh nice that's insane dude. that's a lot right that's 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 insane and then and the kickstarter worked do you have any idea why the kickstarter worked was it just timing was it like you know one of these ideas whose times had come or it works because we laid out a picture of what of something that I think people, yeah, a lot of people knew should exist. There was enough people at that point who had used 3D printers or um, had seen them and seen the power of them, um, but but knew that they were expensive and difficult to use and didn't have the access to them that they wanted. And so all we had to say is like, we're going to do the things, we can do the things you know and love about 3D printers. We're just going to make it cheaper and easier. And and that that really uh, struck a chord with, with a lot of people. And, uh, and the resolution. I mean, the resolution of SLA versus an FDM at that time period. Yeah, well, the, and that's part of the 3D printer that you know and love because the, the other right. desktop printers that were around then, it was pretty clear that they were not delivering what the, the big expensive systems were doing. I, it's not just about FDM or, or SLA or something like that. It's like, is it a professional system that makes good parts? Uh, you can do that right. with FDM too. Yeah. But, but the hobbyist desktop systems at the time were not doing that. They were clearly you know, made out of plywood and made for hobbyists and, and that sort of thing. You took the name pro, you kind of invented this pro desktop category, let's say. You know, why was that? So, okay, yes, you get better resolution. Was it important for you because otherwise you couldn't get the performance you wanted or you couldn't build the ecosystem you wanted or what was the what was the deal? The reason more money. we focus on professionals <laughs> is because there was no and is still there is no consumer 3D printer market. And... Uh, uh, and so we, you know, we started out with a very vague idea of let's make 3D printing more accessible and like potentially to consumers. But then we thought about it and we looked at the progress the other desktop printer companies had made. And as far as I was concerned, there was they were no closer to they they were not making anything on track to be a consumer product. Um, and that the real opportunity was to go from the few thousand people who had access to. Uh, uh, to the professional 3D printers, to a million professionals who had access to 3D printers, and maybe someday, long down the road, a consumer printer would, you know, might be possible, and then we'd like to build that too. Um, but uh, but the you know, the big step we could make was to get it to more professionals. Do you still believe that consumer printing is something that will eventually maybe happen, or? or... Uh, I I think it may happen. Um, I think the hobbyist market has grown. So I, I differentiate clearly between a hobbyist printer and a consumer uh, printer. A hobbyist printer is one where you get the value out of using the printer, not what it does for you. Um, and uh, uh, so that, that market's grown. Um, but uh, I, I think we're still pretty far from a consumer printer. And I, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you how I... I think about that. Um, I run this thought experiment of uh, take the most powerful, most expensive 3D printer uh, that, that you can think of, whichever process you like, maybe a big multi-material inkjet system with a large bed or something like that, that costs half a million dollars. Imagine that you could compact it into a thousand dollar product that sits on your desk. Uh, and then imagine that the trained operator who runs that half million dollar system is also compacted into that thousand dollar box. <laughs> uh, 
And uh, <laughs> now you have like, here's the product. Is that, could that be a successful consumer product? Would it do enough that, you know, a large fraction of the population might want such a thing? And the answer was no in 2011. The answer is still, and oh, oh, by the way, and when the answer to that question is yes, you're at the beginning of a five plus year, billion dollar R&D effort to, to achieve that. Right. Um, and, and, but the answer is still no. <laughs> because the, yeah. it just doesn't do enough for for uh, for someone at, at home who you know there's not enough things they can make at home. Um, but it, it doesn't you know, doesn't doesn't matter because there's so many things we could do with 3D printers uh, that it doesn't have to be your grandma using them. Uh, more interesting to talk about all all the other people who, who can get value out of them today. When you you had this, there was, okay, there was a market for SLA, the larger systems, the the, the uh, that kind of thing. Did you know then? Because I, I remember we had. Uh, when I met you, we were having meetings about like whether dental would be a good idea, that kind of thing. And, and you start now, you have a very strong d- vertical focus. You have dental printers for the dental market and dental residents and stuff. Yeah. Did you did you think of that at the time, or when did you kind of consider this to be different markets? Yeah, I mean, we you know in our earliest kind of pitch decks and business plans, we certainly looked at different um, different segments and that that we'd be selling into engineers and education and other markets like that. Um, Dental maybe wasn't in our very earliest plans, but um, dental was certainly very well known in 3D printing. You know, the largest 3D printing customer at that time and still today is is a dental company, and um, so uh, yeah, it was. We had to advance our product uh, to the point where we were kind of good enough for those dental customers who were maybe more demanding than some of the more early adopter type engineering customers. Uh, but we still take a very horizontal technology approach. Like our goal is to put the most printer per dollar into a box that's useful for a lot of different applications, mass produce it, produce many times more of it than, than any of our competitors. And, uh, and, and then we do specialize for each vertical more on the materials and more on the go-to-market efforts where it's a little bit easier to kind of specialize. So you don't want to have like different models for different markets, like really in a, in a, in a differentiating way, which would make your, your cost go up and that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. We, we are much more focused with, with the form line. We have more revenue on a single line than any other company in the world, including some of the companies that are a few times larger than us. And then also, given the fact that, that you do that and then it's easier to assemble such a system or, or potentially could be easier to assemble such a system than an FDM one, do you think that's going to give you like an in-grade long-term advantage? Or Yeah, I think if you can get this sort of flywheel where if you can out-invest uh, substantially in terms of R&D, then you can you can build things that, that people can't do. Uh, yeah, I think that this is the, the sort of the Apple model where they have fewer SKUs they invest enormously more in each in each version of their phone than any of their competitors, and that lets them develop their own chips and cameras and go deep into each of these technologies, get massive economies of scale. Uh, so that's that's definitely the, the approach. I do think that Apple is an inspiration to you. I mean, it does it does feel like you 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 kind of are inspired with that as a company. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, although I'm personally not like a fan boy. I'm sitting in front of a of a Dell computer and a Google phone, uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm incredibly impressed with, uh, with what they've achieved, uh, as, as a business and the products they shipped and all that. One thing I thought was really interesting is, uh, is you chose very early for this kind of, uh, 
this kind of closed ecosystem approach where you deliver the software, you deliver the resin, everything is in tune with each other. Why did you decide to go for that? Because the, the, the big gap with 3D printers in general, and certainly with the desktop 3D printers, is, is that they weren't working well enough. They weren't producing the results you expect every time. They weren't easy enough to use. And so that, um, that is something that to, to, to execute well with 3D printers, you have to work on hardware, software, and materials, and they really interact in a way that you have to build them together. So it, it, we had to work on all pieces. That, that's, that's the way we think about it. We, we kind of we try to do as little as we can to to deliver a nice chunk of value uh, so it's not like we wanted to own all parts of the system but, but we had to yeah I think that there's a lot of feedback loops there's a lot of interactions and it's also from a user perspective it's very complicated to kind of like if there's a problem with your resin and then you have a different supplier for each thing it's very complicated to find the solution for that kind of thing yeah absolutely I mean what customers want from us they want a part. They don't want a printer or a material or software. They want a part, and uh, but you need those three parts to come together to, to make a good part. From an architectural point of view, I totally understand your approach. But then again, the kind of the the FDM world has seen a lot of like, for example, material vendors uh, pile in. A lot of companies trying to extract more value for themselves because all these printers are open. And then we see a lot more FDM materials under development. It's also very much easier, of course, in developing residents. But I mean. Um, do you think that that ultimately is going to be the retard growth, or do you think this kind of like more controlled approach is like definitely always going to be a, a good idea? I think it's likely to evolve over time, and um, the, the you know closed versus open and and uh, business models and who develops what and who who makes what that that that's probably not going to be the same uh, ten years from now as it was ten years ago. Um, uh, uh, but I, I think, you know, at this point, we, we continue to advance our field uh, quite a lot. And, and if you look even in FDM, who's the largest player in FDM? Stratasys. And they're taking that closed approach as well. Well, yeah, it's, it's honestly when you're dealing, even on the FDM front, I remember in the early days of FDM thinking, what's the difference? It's all plastic, right? And then I would see actual differences in my prints based off of how much you pay for your plastic. So you, you get what you pay for on some level. Yep. Yeah, but in a manufacturing scenario, I, I would never want to be dependent on one material supplier and one uh, printer OEM, you know? I would always want to have at least two machines and two different material vendors just in case not to, to, to have a little bit of redundancy in my supply chain. Yeah, no, and, and that that's absolutely a you know good pro for the for the other side, uh, and again, I think it's it's going to evolve over time, um, but we we win large customers with our system, and and the, the thing that we can we can offer that's is that uh, the the one neck to squeeze, uh, you know, as you were saying earlier, like <laughs> when it doesn't work, uh, who who do you call? Whose fault is it? Oh. And uh, we we can take all that responsibility on. Uh, I think I think it's interesting that you guys then at one point you developed the fuse, uh, and now you're you're releasing a also a compact uh, uh, powder bed fusion system. So first off, like why did you want to get into powder bed fusion? We saw the same opportunity we did in stereolithography, where uh, there's um, really powerful capabilities, but very expensive and difficult to use. SLS is probably the most inaccessible uh, technology or, or powder bed fusion more generally. Um, you know, require dedicated facilities and and special operators and all the support equipment. 
Um, and we kind of went through and looked at what's in those machines and concluded that, yeah, it's possible to sort of apply our approach and get something cheaper and, and simpler. And uh, so we set off to do that. Turned out to be harder than we expected, took longer than we expected. Uh, <laughs> it always does. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but we got it there and, um, and now we're, you know, we're delivering a lot of machines. People are very, very happy with them. And it's, it's, uh, it feels just like um, the early days of SLA did for us, where there's really no, no competition. There's like, if you want, what's the price point on that machine? Uh, the machine's about $18,000 full package with everything you need from us for uh, a little over 30,000. Mm-hmm. And that, that I, but am I going to be vacuuming all the time? Cause that's a, that's a big problem <laughs> with, with this powder bed, right? It's, it, it definitely takes a bit more space and, and a little bit more infrastructure than one of our desktop SLA systems. Um, but it's something that uh, if you've got any kind of sort of light shop setting where, uh, you know, got some other, say, milling machine or that, that type of equipment, it's something you can handle. We've, we put just as much work into cost reduction as we do into that accessibility uh, piece. So along with Fuse, almost as important is SIFT, the post-processing system where uh, you, you take the finished builds out of Fuse, put them into SIFT, uh, keeps most of the powder contained there, helps get part clean, re- recycle the powder to get back in the machine. And um, that's something we treat as a first party thing where many of our competitors, you know, they'll send you to a third party or they'll, they'll sell you some kind of clearly janky hack together thing um, for, for the post-processing steps. I think that's really interesting. I think I think Mark Forge has a similar approach where they'll they'll sell you the whole suite of products, and a lot of other people are just like, "Hey, buy the box. You're on your own, <laughs> right?" Um, uh, and but you already have the transaction, so it's, to me, it would be super compelling to to at least sell them a white label junky thing, you know. <laughs> but, but then, but then also, but also to like just make that part of the process because that is very painful. The the depowdering and powder infusion is is a super painful process in terms of labor costs, in terms of just messy, uh, it being messy and annoying, and and dealing with that is like I think a, a really big uh, big deal. Yeah, post processing is where a lot of the uh, a lot of the cost and a lot of the issues uh, and questions in three D printing are, and and it gets neglected. It's it's the dirty little secret of three D printing, literally dirty. Uh, and, and so we, we try to address it head on and uh, work on it rather than hiding it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so, so is this, are you going to keep doing this or are you just going to focus on SLA and, and powder bed or are you going to keep exploring yeah, more, more. Yeah, even more? Uh, there's certainly, there's certainly plenty more to do with, with these two print engines, uh, you know, especially on, on powder bed side, we, we, just got started and you can see from kind of our history with SLA that we expanded on it with materials and multiple systems and all that. Um, but uh, we think we're going to bring our approach to other, other parts of digital fabrication and uh, that there's, there's a lot of, a lot of places we can, we can re-envision how product is built, make it 10 uh, X more accessible and, uh, and get it to more people. Uh, so um as, yeah, as long as we see those opportunities, we're gonna gonna try to take on as many as we can get done. Um, that being said, we've uh, you know as we talked about earlier, we we try to keep our product lineup really focused, and uh, we want to make sure everything we we go into we do really well. Uh, so um, it's a balance of not uh, not spreading ourselves too thin. Yeah. 
Uh, I think I, one thing that's really inspirational to me, I think, is is LMI, Laser Metal Innovations, or something, and One Click Metal, for example. I love how they managed to take a lot of the, the, the powder bed fusion from metal problems away and, and make that a really accessible technology, a much more accessible uh, than I thought it could be, really, to, to, to aid within the bounds of a traditional powder bed fusion system. You know? Yeah, I think there's uh, you have to go through each process and each workflow kind of step by step and looking at each one it's easy to say oh right now this is very big and expensive and requires all this you know uh challenges like when we started with sla people were very worried about the the fumes from the chemicals and other kind of environmental controls and uh, all these different concerns that were true for the the big systems but there are ways to work through them and solve them uh, and so if you can kind of make that list and knock enough of them down you can you can transform an existing process. Have you become like like so now you were you, you this is your first job was essentially being like f- co-founding this firm, and now and we're we're talking like many years later and in startup land is many years later. Do you feel you're like much more of an executive kind of person? Have you learned a lot of stuff about like things like marketing and HR and stuff like that? I've certainly learned a lot in, in the last ten years, and uh, I don't think I could do could have done the job I do today ten years ago, and I certainly could not have. Um, but, uh, it still feels like I'm doing pretty much the same thing. Like my, you know, the, the, the thing we do is, is bring a big new capability to a lot of people. That's why we exist. And, and we do that through solving hard technical problems and through looking at a complex workflow and and finding those sort of weak spots and, and improving on them. And and that, that's what I'm doing, uh, doing at a bigger scale with, with more people, um, but but that's that's still the core. Okay, I think it's a good mission. I think it's it's also a mission you could see continuing a long way if you just you know repeated like a rinse repeat kind of a, a business. I'd say. Yeah, we could do some rinse repeat. We we also have some ideas for some uh, for some other things we can get into. Uh, I think that yeah, that the broad mission is expand access to digital fabrication so anyone can make anything. That's what okay. So so the farm labs like desktop vacuum former. Is, is what we're going to be seeing. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, Maybe. Laser cutter? Laser cutter? <laughs> we're not going to make uh, products where we can't make a, a leap over what's out there. If there's decent stuff okay, okay. out there, then... Um, yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's fine. And I, I think that's an interesting approach. I mean, I think... And, but now, if we're looking at the field, right? So now the field on FDM... Uh, the desktop FDM has really large Chinese players in it that, that sell like hundreds of thousands of systems, but at a very low uh, uh, cost per unit. We've got these publicly traded firms, and we've got a whole bunch of SPACs uh, uh, lining up. Uh, I think, uh, I don't know how many there are, like 14 now or something. I keep uh, lose track. And these guys, yeah, I, uh, and, and now we're seeing like also application focused startups getting a lot of money. So people just saying, Hey, I want to do like hollow AM is my favorite, like a dome in as well. We've had on the show. Uh, these are very application focused business. So the landscape is very capital rich, uh, and also can becoming much more differentiated, I think. Um, and, and you decide then not to do a SPAC, but you do then get a, a, another round of investment. How, what was that decision like? It was very tough. Yeah, if I rewind to the beginning of this year when we were sort of making that call, um, everyone and their mother going public via SPAC and getting insanely high valuations—it's hard to pass up. Uh, you know, and we're we're larger in revenue than basically all of the new machine SPAC companies combined. 
Uh, and so it's it's hard to say like, well, why don't why don't we go and, and do a monster spec ourselves? Um, we certainly thought about that. Uh, ultimately, though, I think that um, there's uh, there's a bunch of downsides to being a public company, and those are uh, you know sort of increased overhead and distraction for for the the, the company and the team and short term focus and all that. Um, and you know ultimately that that's probably our long term path to become a public company. But those downsides are mitigated if one you're really prepared to be a public company. Uh, also, if you're much larger, um, and so we already had some kind of milestones we set for ourselves of when, when we would uh, be ready to go public, and um, uh, we decided to kind of stick to that plan and and take our time. And uh, I think when when we choose to go public, we will be in, we're already more mature than most of those companies, but we're going to be in a in a much better place. Um, and uh, I worry that a lot of the those companies that have gone public via SPAC are uh, they may um, tarnish the the reputation of of three D printing because I don't think all of them are going to uh, succeed or live up to the, the valuations. They yeah, I mean we saw this in the past, right? Maker MakerBot is a great example of doing something along those lines. We've we've seen it in the past, and uh, but it but it, it hurts those of us who are hard at work because it, uh, yeah. it, it you know, hurts investor interest in our companies. Uh, so that could actually, if you're very cynical, that could actually be a reason for you to go do a SPAC as well, right? Because you're like, oh, well, the money isn't, isn't really that, that, or the money is so loose right now and so uh, overflowing that, that, you know, it's unlikely to be as uh, enthusiastic and as easy to get money a while ago, especially if you believe that there's increased risk for some of these SPACs. Yeah, and we we thought about that for sure. And um, it's, yeah, it's a tough call, lots of trade-offs, but um, right now I'm pretty pretty happy with our call. Mm-hmm. I think you made the right decision. Yeah? I, 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 yeah. Well, we'll never I, I, know, going, right? Yeah. Going going public by itself is just a lot of effort and a lot of work, and rushing to go public is just a bad idea. To me, it depends. I mean, if sentiment is soured, like sufficiently soured forever that people like walk away from industry, then, yeah, it might turn to be a very expensive decision. But I think it's interesting we had Marie Langer on the, the podcast, uh, uh, CEO of, of EOS, and, and she was of the opinion, of course, that, 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 that she could have a much more long-term business focus by being a private company. Yeah, I th- they're, they're certainly challenged to, to keep a long-term focus as a public company, but, but there are public companies that have done it. And, uh, you know, there's companies like Amazon that have invested aggressively for, for many years and built really huge long-term businesses. And, and yeah, there's plenty of companies that have done it before, but it, it certainly takes, uh, uh, takes focus on it and, and not getting distracted with short-term results. Definitely. And what other things? So, so you want to go public? You want to like maybe repeat uh, the, your democratization uh, ability with with different technologies? You could bring the cost down. What do you hope Formlabs to be as like a company, as a, as an organization? I want to build a big tech company that that keeps bringing innovative products to market that that kind of maximizes our impact on the world. I think of impact as um, it's kind of multiplying two quantities. One is how much better is what we bring into the world. How much do we advance the state of the art? How much faster, easier to use? How much, you know, how much better healthcare products are made with our systems? All, all those things kind of sum that up. Times, how many people do we get those better products to? 
and uh, so that, that's that's what we're trying to do: maximize that that impact quantity. And uh, we're going to do that through, yeah, creating new excellent products and uh, getting them to lots of people. Okay, cool, man. Max, that's like a wonderful vision, wonderful plan. Uh, thank you so much for being on the three D Pod today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And uh, well, uh, other Max, uh, thank you for being here as well. <laughs> I have always a pleasure. What, what, one more <laughs> note, uh, which is um, we're hiring. Uh, we, we're having quite quite a bit of uh, growth uh, in in the last year or so, uh, shipping lots of new products, growing revenue quite a bit. Might be going public in you know in the not long distant future, and we're hiring across the company: um, engineering, marketing, sales, everything you can imagine. Um, in in the U.S., in Europe, uh, all over the place. So uh, careers.formlabs.com, check it out. Send us your resume. Okay, perfect, cool. perfect. And I, I'll see you. I'll see you if you need a podcaster. Uh, <laughs> 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 all right. Uh, so thank you so much for listening, everybody. And this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And my name is Joris Peels. And uh, yeah, thank you for being here. Have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.